0: Good morning. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Judges and to chapter 15. There's some contact. Some of you guys remember uh, the stake and study we meet on Monday with Rick Skelton, our friend from Calvary Chapel, uh, Adelanto. He, he uh, texted me this morning. We were talking to each other. and He wants me to pray for him, he said, because on his way to church, and he's all studied up for the message, and then he realized that he skipped uh, 11, cha- 11 verses that he's supposed to be doing this morning. And so um, I texted back an encouragement saying, what a loser. But I've actually done that. You just forget that you're not at the end of the chapter. And so it's, it's kind of a terrifying thing. But we are in Judges 15. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 20. The topic there, with a sudden spectacular use of force, Samson kills 1,000 Philistine soldiers using only the jawbone of a donkey. The title of our message, Shock and Jaw. Uh huh. That's top 10 material right there. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us this uh, pleasant opportunity to share together in fellowship and to listen to your word being taught. And by being taught, we pray for the Spirit to be our teacher, Lord to take your words and words that I might say that are in agreement with them and to bring them to our hearts, to get in between the, uh, the soul and the spirit where only you can minister your grace and goodness. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. In X-Men Origins Wolverine, once the adamantium is in him, Logan easily breaks free from his restraints and wreaks havoc on his captors as he makes his escape. Arnold Schwarzenegger's character in Total Recall breaks through metal shackles not once but twice. In Man of Steel, when Superman is in military custody, he effortlessly breaks the handcuffs they put on him, showing that they couldn't really control him. But on the top of my list, in the Muppet movie, Miss Piggy snaps her bonds to save her frog. Movie heroes and heroines love to show off their power by busting out of chains or ropes or similar restraints. It originated with Israel's hero, Samson. Early and then later in his career, he would be bound only to easily break his restraints. The first of those episodes is here in chapter 15. His own people bound him in order to turn him over to the Philistines. Let's just read that section real quick, verses 13 and 14. We will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand, but we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. It's a great story with lots of intrigue, but it's also a great illustration God was trying to show the Israelites that, like Samson, they had yielded themselves to be bound. God warned them that if they chose to worship the gods of the surrounding nations, he would deliver them into their oppression. They did just that, and in that sense, they had yielded themselves to being bound by them. But also like Samson, the Israelites could easily, at any time, break their bondage and overcome the Philistines by humbly returning to God. It's a picture for us too. A Christian can be bound by yielding himself or herself over to sin, or you can break free by yielding yourself to the power of the indwelling Spirit. Here's how the Apostle Paul explained it in the book of Romans. He says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And so we have a choice. We can walk in the freedom of serving Jesus by yielding ourselves to him, or we can yield ourselves to sin and return to its bondage. The same Holy Spirit who empowered Samson physically can empower you spiritually. There are, therefore, no bonds that can possibly hold you unless you voluntarily yield yourself to sin. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, quit yielding yourself to be bound by sin. Number two, keep yielding yourself to be unbound by the Spirit. Let's take a look at being bound by sin in verses 1 through 13. I know a lot of you enjoyed the recent version of Beauty and the Beast with live actors, but for my taste, the animated version is superior. I especially like its portrayal of Gaston. The song sung by LeFou about him perfectly captures his self-absorbed nature. No one hits like Gaston, matches wits like Gaston in a spitting match. Nobody spits like Gaston. I'm especially good at expectorating. Then he spits into the spittoon. I don't want to suggest Samson was like Gaston in terms of his physique. Samson was average at best. Otherwise, why would the Philistines wonder where his strength came from? But in his attitude and in his general demeanor and in his self-absorption, Gaston is a good type for Samson. Now, when we left Samson, he had killed 30 Philistines to pay a gambling debt. He lost the bet because the Philistines pressured his betrothed wife to discover the answer to his riddle. Angered, Samson left his betrothed wife at the proverbial altar. And that's where we're picking up the story in chapter 15. After a while, in the time of the wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, let me go into my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. In chapter 14, Samson had referred to his betrothed as a heifer. He abandoned her. We're not sure how long, but it seems a significant period of time had gone by. The fix for it, in his mind, was to bring her a goat. Now, some commentators try to argue that a young goat was their version of a box of chocolates. Ladies. I'm not buying it. Oh, look at my little pet goat. Thank you, Samson. You're so romantic. It's really Gaston-like. It would grow up to be something she could slaughter and feed him. That's the whole idea. So it's, It's one of those gifts, you know. Where'd you get your wife? I got her a brand new iron. She was betrothed to Samson by the legal arrangement of the parents. The marriage feast had been thrown, but Samson left before the marriage could be consummated. Because everything was about him, he assumed that the jilted bride would be waiting expectantly for him. He was, of course, in for a rude awakening. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please, take her. Samson may have abandoned the wedding feast, but this Philistine father of the bride was not about to lose his deposit. They went ahead with the marriage without the groom, giving the daughter to a Philistine who was standing in as Samson's best man. To resolve the matter with Samson, he offered his younger daughter to him on the spot. As an aside, what's with these Old Testament dads? If you were a girl in Old Testament times, you were in trouble. First of all, Samson is going to marry his daughter. Samson storms off and he says, yeah, I'm not going to lose my deposit. You're going to marry this guy right now. Then Samson comes back and he says, well, um, take my younger daughter. Honey, quit washing dishes. You're now married. Lot, my favorite Old Testament dad with daughters, the men of the city of Sodom want to have sexual relations with the two angels who've come to destroy the town. And Lot goes out and says, oh, don't do this to these men. I've got some daughters that you can abuse. What is rut, these guys? So, anyway, no Old Testament parenting. Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Then Samson went and caught 300 foxes, took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines. ...and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain... ...as well as vineyards and olive groves. This capture required some supernatural help. I find it hard to catch my cat inside the house. They seem to know when you want to catch them. When you don't want to be bothered, they're laying on your computer... ...but when you want to catch them, they're all over the house. Samson was not a member of PETA, that's for sure. I doubt the foxes survived... I was going to try this with squirrels, but I I thought better of it. I couldn't get permission from the fire department. Anyway, overlooking that fact, I have to say this was a brilliant strategy. It allowed one man to destroy the entire agrarian economy of a region in one day. One man, Samson, with caught foxes and fire, burned down all the crops in that Philistine area... And destroyed their economy. Verse 6. Then the Philistines said. Who has done this? And they answered Samson. The son-in-law of the Timnite. Because he has taken his wife. And given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up. And burned her and her father with fire. Father the bride had done nothing wrong. Except get involved with Samson in the first place. Let's hope our involvement with non-believers. Turns out a little better than that. That we actually have a positive. uh, Blessed influence on their life. I hear they're remaking Death Wish. Now, I got in trouble first service because a younger crowd, nobody knew what I was talking about. Anybody remember the movie Death Wish with Charles Bronson? All right, a bunch of oldies. It's one of those great movies that you're not supposed to like as a Christian because it's about revenge and killing and murder. So I'm not going to watch it for sure. But anyway, Bruce Willis is going to be the vigilante that Charles Bronson made famous in the original. I was thinking about that, but because this is a situation like that where you know the wife and the father-in-law are killed. But I kind of doubt that Samson was torn up emotionally about all this. Now, he wasn't all that invested in this girl, certainly not in her father. But it did offer him the opportunity to do some damage to the Philistines. And so Samson said to them, verse seven: "Since you would do a thing like this, I'm going to take revenge on you, and after that I'll cease." So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. And then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Edom. No one's quite uh, exactly sure the derivation of the phrase, smote them hip and thigh. There's a bunch of comical attempts at, uh, they're not meant to be comical, but the commentators are trying to get an idea of what that might mean. One said he stacked the bodies up, hip then thigh, hip then thigh, and and I thought, that's insane. I think our equivalent would be he tore them limb from limb. That's how we would put it. In chapter 14, you remember Samson had been attacked by an Asiatic lion in its prime, and it says he tore the lion apart. And I think he did that literally. And so quite literally, Samson tore the limbs off of Philistines in a massacre. We're talking about a powerful situation here. We aren't told how many of them he killed, but it was a significant enough number to be called a great slaughter. Samson thought he'd kill a few guys, then he says, after that, I'll cease. He wanted to have the last word. That's what was important to Samson. You know people like that. You're not a person like that, are you? Are you a last word person? Where you have to have the last word in an argument? Well, Samson was. And, and, and so he thought, I'm going to have the last word and then I'm going to be done. He had no idea that he was supposed to be Israel's hero leading them against the Philistines. He just wanted to kill some of them. Now, the Philistines went up. They encamped in Judah and deployed themselves against Lehi deployed gives you the understanding that this is a military operation these are soldiers and the men of judah said why have you come up against us so they answered we've come up to arrest samson and to do to him as he has done to us then three thousand men of judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to samson don't you know the philistines rule over us what is this you have done to us and he said to them as they did to me so i have done to them 3,000 men go down to appeal to one man. It's pretty clear the men of Judah were afraid of Samson. Of course, we know that he outnumbered them still. 3,000 wasn't going to be enough if he chose to do some damage. But they were afraid. Too bad they had no fear of God. Had they feared God, they would not be subject to the Philistines, but instead they'd be ruling over them. Had they feared God, they would not have been afraid of the man that God was using against their enemy. And had they feared God, they would be volunteering to become Samson's army, not his arresters. Verse 12, But they said to him, We've come down to arrest you, that we may deliver you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Well, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Surely someone among the men of Judah must have known the story of the angel of the Lord visiting Mr. and Mrs. Manoah, promising them a child who would grow up to be Israel's next hero. Somewhere, stories must have been told of him being a Nazirite from the womb. I mean, this was an unusual event that would spread by word of mouth. And now here he was, clearly able to deal death blows to Philistines. Sure, he was a little rough around the edges, but this was their hero, and he was bona fide. Instead of rallying, they arrested him. Luckily for them, Samson agreed to be arrested. So they spoke to him saying, no... We'll tie you securely and deliver you into their hand, but we surely will not kill you. They bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. In that scene I alluded to earlier in The Man of Steel, when Superman consents to be handcuffed, there's a veritable army standing by with things like tranquilizer guns. We all know that it's useless against him that he's submitting because it will get him to the real fight. And that's what's happening here with Samson. He says, "Go, go ahead and bind me, arrest me, turn me over to them. Still, the men of Judah go down to Lowe's and they get two new ropes, thinking that they will hold Samson secure. If we're going to bind this guy who just tore people limb from limb, literally, and who tore a lion apart, let's get a new rope. That's the ticket. So the men of Judah, they don't see it. They don't see what is being illustrated right before their eyes. By worshiping the gods of the Philistines, which they were forewarned by God to not do... They had voluntarily given themselves over to be in bondage to their fierce enemy. Sure, it was God who delivered them to the Philistines by withdrawing his protection, but it was their choice to go that route. In front of them was an average-looking Jew who had extraordinary supernatural enabling from God. That, too, could be them. It should be them. Even though it was a time in which God was raising up judges... I submit that any devout Jew could have defeated the Philistines. I base that on the fact that some years later, as the time of the judges was ending, giving way to the time of the kings, a teenage shepherd boy was amazed that not a single Israelite soldier would accept the challenge of Goliath, the Philistine giant. David had a sense that any Israelite walking with the Lord could kill Goliath easily. And he was amazed that no one had that sense. And so, yes, God was raising up heroes, but you have to know that they could have stepped forward and, and heroically thrown off these bonds themselves. What about us? After we are saved, we are to yield our members, which means our bodies and our minds, over to God to serve Him. But we find left within our unredeemed mortal bodies what we call the flesh... It's a propensity to give ourselves over to sin, to use our bodies and our minds to serve ourselves and to serve sin rather than God. When we yield to sin, it's as if we're asking to be bound by the very things that God delivered us from. Then we act like it's not our fault and that there's not much we can do about it. We're like the the men of Judah saying, don't you know that we're being ruled over? Well you know we're, we're there's nothing we can do this is you know we've we've given ourselves over to this and it's ruling us now there's there's no resolve the idea of being able to immediately break the bindings has become foreign to us we believe now that weeks or months or years or a lifetime is needed for us to be able to say no to sin it's a, it's permeated the popular culture and it's permeated Christian culture if I suggest to somebody that the answer to their problem is repentance and faith and turning to the Lord and walking with the Lord and the indwelling Holy Spirit their next question is do I know a professional that I can refer them to because they're sure that they need weeks, months, years of professional counseling in order to break the bonds now Notwithstanding that we will struggle with the flesh for our entire lives, we are to believe that we can have immediate victory over the flesh in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Samson's that great example, a guy that can, with his bare hands, tear people apart, thousands of them at a time. That kind of spiritual power is what's inside of you. You can tear up sin if you yield yourself to the Lord. The Apostle Paul bemoaned the fact that there's a struggle within us against the flesh. He even sounded desperate when he declared at the end of Romans, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The end of Romans 7. He quickly answered himself saying, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he spends an entire chapter describing the Spirit's power in our lives. We quoted Paul earlier regarding yielding to the Spirit not the flesh. Let me expand with the verses preceding what I quoted. He says this. This is Romans six eleven through 13. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it and its lust. Don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Yield yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Paul seems to be saying that if you are bound by some sin, it's because you have yielded to your flesh. You can break the bondage right now by instead yielding to God. Since it's never by your power or your willpower that bindings are broken, but by God's supernatural enabling, your sin is always like new ropes that must easily fall away as you turn to Jesus. For the most part, I think most of us, all of us at some point, even as Christians, rely on our willpower. If someone were to say to you, God helps those who help themselves, you'd say, that's not in the Bible, that's a heresy. But a lot of times we think, I have this problem, I have this sin issue, whatever it is, there's nothing I can do about it. Until I pray more and more and more and read more and more and more. And, and, and by my willpower, I can build up the strength to defeat it. And Paul would say, your willpower stinks. God's power is where it's at. And the problem is, for the most part, we don't actually believe that he who is in us is that strong. Able to throw these things off. I've been appealing through some of these studies to the, those of you who got saved as, a, as an adult. You believed it then when you first got saved and all of a sudden the shackles fell off, the bonds fell off. You broke all the bondage that was in your life. Why is it so much harder later? Because we lack the faith to believe that the Holy Spirit is able to do what he is able to do. We want to keep yielding ourselves to be unbound by the Spirit. That's in verses 14 through 20. I'm sorry, I like these superhero movies. Don't judge me. Both Steve Rogers and Tony Stark think that capturing Loki was a little too easy. They find out why. It was Loki's plan all along to be captured so he could do real damage to the Avengers and to S.H.I.E.L.D. And that's what Samson has in mind. So I guess the Philistines didn't watch too many movies. So when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. By the way, this isn't even him. We like to think immediately, you know, like some incredible Hulk thing. It says here they just burned off. He was just standing there, and they were gone. God's going to a great lengths to prove to us that it's his power and nothing about Samson. So maybe the men... Of, sir, if you're a Philistine, maybe the men of Judah are just no good with knots. Maybe, you know, they didn't tie him up. Still, you've got at least a thousand armed soldiers against one seemingly unarmed, unassuming looking Jew. He's not bound anymore, but he's just a little guy with no weapon, and there's a thousand of you. They were about to discover that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. The result... Initially, it was the breaking of the ropes. It wasn't much, but it was a visible sign that he was at work, that something was happening. The Spirit's work in our lives doesn't have to always be spectacular, but there should be visible signs. I would suggest things like uh, that we seem free and full of joy and that we're not worried, just to name a few. It's sad when non-believers think it is somehow a bondage to walk with Jesus Christ. You know what I'm talking about. A lot of your non believing friends, it may not be your fault and, and they may be in error about it, but somehow they've gotten the understanding that to walk with God is some terrible bondage, that all it is is a bunch of things you cannot do. You know, well, you could be home mowing your lawn right now. <laughs> wow, that's some freedom there. But you can't, you have to go to church. And you say, Well, I don't have to go to church, I want to go to church. Oh. But there are Christians who portray this kind of joyless, legalistic relationship. And we don't want to do that. We want to be set free so that people are, are, as we'll see in a minute, thirsty for the Lord. Verse 15, he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Reached out his hand, took it, and he killed a thousand men with it. All right. By the way, an old jawbone just wouldn't do. It'd be too brittle. This has to be fairly new. Talk about God providing just right And on the right time. It's a tiny thing, but I'll share it as an example. This happened to me this week, right when I was studying this passage. So, here we go. So, it's, uh, let me see which day it is so I don't lie. Tuesday. So, Tuesday. Every year, we have to have an official test of our backflow valve. So that the water you drink here is safe. You can be assured, it's safe from backflow, but not from arsenic. (laughs) and whatever else is in the water in Hanford but anyway I look out one of the things I look out from my office window is that beautiful olive tree complex you know but then right beyond it is the backflow valve so me and the valve are very very familiar with each other so they test the valve and um, later that day I notice that it's dripping a little bit it's got a little bit of water coming out of it so I go out there and I take a look at it sure enough there's a petcock on there that, that is just it's leaking so I do what I always do when something's broke. I leave it alone, trusting God to fix it. You call it procrastination, I call it faith. So we get to the next day, and I'm just minding my own business in my office. I've forgotten about it, um, and, and, and I look out at some point. There it is, and it's still wet underneath. Not a lot, just, but it's wet, and I know I have to do it, so I... Why I have to go outside, I don't know. But I decide to go outside again and, and look at it again as to maybe, maybe if I look at it right, it'll stop, you know, or something. But I, just as I go out there, just as I hit the valve, Michael Guy is driving down Dowdy. And if you don't know Michael Guy, he's a great Christian plumber. Um, and we use him for a lot of stuff. He didn't test the valve. He doesn't do that. But he, he's driving by, and I make eye contact with him. And he, he does some kind of thing like, And I go, and so he pulls over and I explain, it took me longer to explain to him what was going on than for him to fix it. And then he drove off. And I realized that had I gone out 30 seconds sooner or 30 seconds later, um, I would have missed all that. And so, you know, it's a tiny, tiny thing, but it shows that God has his way of timing things out when he wants to. And that's what he did here with um, Samson. He provided just what Samson needed just at the right time. Don't you love it when heroes improvise weapons? As Jaws is approaching him, you remember Chief Brody notices the shark is gnawing on a scuba tank. Brody takes aim, eventually hits the tank, and Jaws is blown to shark sharkareens. I mean, it's like a huge explosion. It's like, uh, it's like he hit a landmine or something. Too bad Mythbusters broke that. You, you can't get an explosion from shooting a scuba tank full of air. Otherwise, there'd be fewer scuba divers. <laughs> now, when I use the scuba dive, they do examine your tank before they fill it with air for rust. Because rust spots will cause it to weaken and it, it can blow out. But it, don't, it doesn't blow up. You don't go up in a puff of smoke. Uh, but still, movie weapons are always fun to goof around with. Uh, So, improvised weapon. uh, If people say God doesn't have a sense of humor, he most certainly does. The only thing Samson could find was the job, the fresh jawbone of a donkey, And I'm guessing he had to do a little bit of manipulation to get that jawbone off. The piece he wanted wasn't just laying there. Samson wasn't exactly a member of PETA, but... Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've slain a thousand men. This is the Bible's first rap. Did you get the beat there? (laughs) With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. (laughs) With the jawbone of a donkey, I've slain a thousand (laughs) men. Right? That's what he's doing. That's stupid. A thousand Philistines slain one one at a time with an improvised weapon. And remember, these were trained soldiers with weapons. Is there anything like this in the annals of hand-to-hand combat? Uh, There's nothing like this even in the movies that I can recall. Samson, I mean, think of it. This actually happened. Samson... Probably my, probably not even my size because they were only about four foot five or five foot four in those days. Little guys got a jawbone of a donkey. Let's do this, <laughs> one at a time, two at a time. A thousand Philistines fall in a brutal assault. And so it was when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramath Lehi. Speaking to who? It was probably the men of Judah who had extradited Samson who witnessed the massacre. If so, how very sad they stood there as spectators. Samson didn't need the help, but it would have been a blessing for them to join in. I mean, after the first hundred or so Philistines went down and it became obvious that Samson was going to prevail, two things should have happened. The men of Judah should have joined in, and the other 700 Philistines ought to have taken off running. I mean, if you're number 998, you're just stupid for hanging around. (laughs) You deserve to die. Ramoth-Lehi would be like us calling it Jawbone Hill. Hamburger Hill, Hacksaw Ridge, Jawbone Hill. That's the idea. It would be a great name, by the way, for the second movie in a trilogy about Samson. He threw the jawbone from his hand. If there was an audience, this was his mic drop. No more Philistines? I'm done. I'm out of here. Going back down to where I belong. Then he became very thirsty, so he cried out to the Lord and said... You've given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? Even though it was the Spirit's empowering upon Samson that gave him victory over a thousand enemies, he still got thirsty. Or maybe he was made thirsty by God. Now notice this, he wasn't out of breath, even though his work had been rigorous. No, in fact, he had so much breath left that he could sing. He killed a thousand men. How long does that take? wielding the jawbone of a donkey. I mean, that's some, that's some work. I haven't worked that hard in a while. And then he sings with the jawbone of a donkey, you know, that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden he realizes he's thirsty. And so this is a supernatural event. God let him be thirsty. Why? Well, for sure to show Samson he needed the Lord for his daily moment-by-moment existence. Samson could be empowered to do incredible things, but he ought to remain humble and of course, his thirst is a spiritual lesson, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But first, let's finish out the chapter. Verse 19. So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi. Water came out and he drank and his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, he called its name En-Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. En-Hakor means spring of the caller. Samson called and God answered by springing up from a well. Or springing a well up from a rock, rather. God didn't take Samson's thirst away. He met it with his provision of water from a rock. Is there something you want God to take away, to remove, or to reverse? Well, he can, but if he doesn't, he's going to meet it with a different kind of provision. He'll meet it with the sufficiency of his grace. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. It almost sounds like the writer, whom we believe is Samuel, is done with the chronicles of Samson, but he isn't. The most infamous of his exploits is yet to come, his trysts with Delilah... It's a statement to remind us that even though Samson had broken two of his Nazarite restrictions and he would go on to break the third, God was still using him as his hero. It reminds us that God won't ever give up on us, no matter what. I think we'd all say that Samson wasn't the hero he could have been, but God refused to abandon him. Now I want to return to this uh, phrase, the spring of the caller. Think about that for a minute and with reverence. I think that would be a great name for God the Holy Spirit. We call out and His spring of living water is available to us thanks to our rock, Jesus Christ. Whatever you're thirsty for in life, you have the spring of the caller and you just need to be the caller. In the Gospel of John, we read this. John 7, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Back in John chapter 4, Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The Bible ends on this note. Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come, let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. In Ecclesiastes, God reveals that he has placed what he calls eternity in the human heart. It's a longing for God that nothing else will ever be able to satisfy. We go through life trying to quench it. But sadly, we often drink from the impure reservoirs of the world rather than the springs of life. It's, it's like drinking something that's a diuretic rather than something that will quench your thirst. The world's religions and its philosophies are nasty, diseased water. God extends grace from the cross to everyone in order that they might turn to Him and instead take the water of life freely. There's no requirements. It's available. You just need to call out and drink it. After you're saved, you struggle against the flesh. The resolve for it is to keep appealing to the spring of the caller, to the pure water provided only by, but abundantly by, the Holy Spirit. The only variable in this equation is you calling out. The water is there. It's abundant. It's not a trickle. You know, in the Old Testament, when Moses... Spoke to the rock, struck the rock and was supposed to speak to it the second time he didn't open up a hose bib and have people come up a cup at a time a torrent of water came out and that's what we're talking about here and so God is saying to us that are Christians I am a torrent of living water I can do spiritually what Samson could do physically incredible things what's your part? willpower? no just call upon me and believe and receive.